Good evening. Russia backs off in Ukraine. An NYPD cop argues he shouldn't lose his job, but he doesn't want to talk about it, at least not with the CCRB. The mayor and videotaping the police 111 years since the labor disaster changed New York forever. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, March 25th, 2022. Moscow signaled today it was scaling back to claimed by Russian-backed separatists in the east captured towns outside the capital, Kiev. In the first big sign that Western sanctions on Moscow were impacting investment from China, Sources said state-run Sinopec Group, Asia's biggest oil refiner, halted talks on a petrochemical investment and a venture to market Russian gas. In the months since Moscow launched its invasion of Ukraine, Russian troops have met stiff resistance and failed to capture any major city. They've instead been bombarding and encircling cities, laying waste to residential areas and driving around a quarter of Ukraine's 44 million people from their homes. And now we're going to switch to local news of import. It was nearly six years ago, on July 4th, 2016, that Officer Wayne Isaacs shot and killed Delron Small in Brooklyn. Both Isaacs and the NYPD made false statements in the initial account of the shooting. Surveillance video surfaced days later, showing that Isaacs shot Small, who was unarmed, within seconds and provided no aid when Small fell to the ground, leaving him to bleed out in the street. In a meeting with the Civilian Complaint Review Board today, Delron Small's family learned that the NYPD officer who shot and killed their unarmed brother in front of his four-month-old baby, teenage stepdaughter, and girlfriend filed a formal request to NYPD Commissioner Keechan Sewell requesting that she remove the case from the CCRB and end the civilian investigatory process. The CCRB substantiates charges, substantiated charges against Officer Wayne Isaacs in October 2020, and the NYPD served those uh, uh uh, serve those charges on Isaacs in 2021, clearing the way for a formal disciplinary trial. Isabel Gonzalez is executive director of Communities United for Police Reform. Today, the siblings of Delron Small met with the Civilian Complaint Review Board, and they were told by CCRB that Wayne Isaacs, who shot and killed their brother little under six years ago, that his case that is set to be scheduled for trial in through CCRB has been trying every maneuver he can to escape accountability. He tried Chapter 78, and that was dismissed. Last week, he filed opposition papers to the unsealing order, which really doesn't make sense because he went to a different court than the judge that granted that the unsealing can happen. And then the latest we heard that happened just a couple of days ago was that Wayne Isaacs and his lawyer sent a letter to NYPD, asking NYPD to send a letter to Commissioner Sewell, asking her to utilize her authority to remove the case from CCRB. Six years, this family has been waiting to get accountability from the man who took their brother's life. NYPD in 2018 found the case to have no merit. And now it's going through a civilian process, and the family has been waiting. The CCRMB has had this case for several years and been waiting to move forward. And Wayne Isaacs and his lawyer have been trying to prevent 
accountability in this case. It was a road rage. He wasn't on duty. He killed somebody because of after a fender bender, I, th- I assume, something like that. Is that manslaughter? Why not manslaughter? Yeah. I appreciate you bringing that up. Delron was 37 years old. He was shot and killed by Wayne Isaacs in front of his four-month-old baby and teen stepdaughter and girlfriend. (laughs) He was killed one day before Alton Sterling was killed by police in Louisiana and two days before Philando Castillo was killed by police in Minnesota. Both of those officers no longer work for their police departments because they were held accountable. Initial accounts from Isaacs and the NYPD falsely claimed that Isaacs was physically assaulted. Surveillance video released days after showed that the claims that saturated the media by the NYPD were wrong. And the so is that lying? That Isaacs, yeah. So why shouldn't well, they be charged with lying? Exactly. So here's the thing. The criminal case, he was found un founded by NYPD. And in this case, the unsealing order is really to allow Isaac to be able to testify at CCRB's trial. And he doesn't want to do that because he was found to contradict himself time and time again. So he would be under oath. Exactly. He's trying to avoid that as much as he can. The CCRB can go to trial right now without the unsealing order and try the case with the evidence they have. But, of course, they want to move forward and be able to interview Isaacs. It was a road rage incident. There was no reason to kill. He shot and came there to call an N and didn't report that he shot. Like, this was... ...to the New York City Police Department and cases... That, for me, it says, and for the communities we represent and the organizations we represent, is that there's a lack of accountability. And when cops get up, instead of being transparent... And instead of holding police on and you don't tell the truth, you should at very least be fired, if not be in jail yourself. And definitely you shouldn't be walking the streets with a gun and getting paid for it. This man killed someone and he's still on those same streets, killed Devon in. And he's collecting taxpayer money. Isabel Gonzalez is executive director of Communities United for Police Reform. And last week, Mayor Eric Adams used a police academy news conference launching his gun-focused public safety unit to slam New Yorkers, he says, use their cell phones to record cops and get so close to the action, they create what he calls a dangerous environment. Stop being on top of my police officers while they're carrying out their jobs. That is not acceptable and it won't be tolerated. That is a very dangerous environment you are creating when you're on top of that officer who has the understanding of what he's doing at the time, yelling police brutality, yelling at the officer, calling them names. Now he has to worry about who's behind him. Is he part of the process that he's trying to de-escalate? That has gotten out of control. You can safely document an incident, but we could use that footage to analyze what happened. But that's not what's happening right now in our city. We're finding people who are standing on top of the officer while he's involved in a dangerous encounter. Not acceptable. It's not going to continue to happen. 
Mayor Adams, in 2014, cell phone footage of the chokehold death of Eric Garner on Staten Island went viral, sparking outrage and leading to calls around the country to reform police practices. Garner's friend, Ramsey Orta, recorded the incident on his cell phone, even as police pressured him to stop recording. Orta was later arrested on a warrant and sent to jail for several years. A circumstance Orta says was the result of police harassment after his video went viral. Another video of George Floyd, recorded by bystanders in 2020, showed a former Minneapolis officer choking him for nine minutes. The video sparked months of worldwide protest. The organization Copwatch trains videographers in how to safely film police who are making arrests. A spokesperson for the group Copwatch is Steve Kaut. He says no matter what the mayor says, the right to videotape police is a civil right. Um, we're not doing this. Uh, we're not doing cop watch in response to Mayor Adams. Um, this Justice Committee has been doing this since 2007, um, and this is not a new tactic. This is not a uh, something that we created. This is something that was created originally by the Black Panthers in a, a form of self defense from um, police agencies like the NYPD. Um, the NYPD has a history of targeting people of color, low-income communities and whatnot, and just being overly aggressive and abusive to our communities. Um, this is just um, one form of basically self-defense for us, like, you know, a, a preventative measure to be, uh, you know, to be more accurate, to try to, you know, de-escalate situations and stop, prevent, actually, you know, uh, uh, instance of police violence before it happens is basically just having a community look out for each other. So um, if I were to see, you know, one of my community members, you know, I would start recording so that we have footage if something does happen. But more importantly, you know, what we want to do is have that kind of community connection so that everybody's looking out for each other so that things like that won't happen. Copwatch is a community response. How does Copwatch work? We initially started patrolling areas, um, patrolling neighborhoods that had high um, instances of police brutality that were reported to us, and we were requested by the neighborhood to go there. Um, we expanded that to other neighborhoods um, that, again, requested us or we you know, got on our radar that you know um, needed that kind of... Uh, kind of deterrent. We started doing it in protests. We started doing it in train stations and other areas that were, you know, were being targeted by the NYPD. Do you think that will work? It has worked. It has proven to have been effective for us already. The key to it, though, is that it's done correctly. You know, we're not, we don't want people to just run out there and put themselves in danger. We thank everybody that practices cop watch safely and effectively because that's what we want and if done correctly it can help communities it can deter this type of violence it can prevent it we're actually having a a training for this on march 29th at 6 30 p.m people can always repeat for it at bit.ly forward slash cop watch 2022 and we're going to conduct the training to show people how to do this correctly and safely is that related to the mayor's claims that people were getting too close, that it's not about filming? What are they trying to hide? I don't understand, like, what they're trying to hide in that type of situation. If it's an innocent stop, if it's a justifiable stop, if no rights are being violated, then why are they trying to hide it? Why isn't it enough to have just their cameras? What's currently going on is they're policing themselves. 
They're retraining, retraining, retraining. They've been retraining for longer than I've been alive. At the end of the day, the training is there. You need accountability. This is a step towards that. Steve Cowd is a spokesperson for the group Copwatch. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Mayor Eric Adams announced yesterday that local performers and pro athletes would no longer be required to be vaccinated to play in city venues, changing an exemption that had kept Nets basketball star Kyrie Irving off the courts. Adams said the policy left city teams at a competitive disadvantage and that expanding the vaccination exemption from just out-of-town performers and athletes to locally-based ones would help the city's economic recovery. Adams' decision comes as COVID-19 cases are rising slightly in the city. And after a $15.6 billion funding bill collapsed in Congress this month, the Biden administration warned of devastating consequences to the pandemic mitigating mitigation efforts and impending lack of boosters and variant uh, specific vaccines and inability to purchase life-saving monoclonal antibody treatments, low testing capacity and more. The Washington Post reports that without new funding, key parts of the United States COVID-19 response will need to be scaled back or halted. Of concern is the funding blockage that has led to a delay in the Biden administration's purchase of antiviral pills. That's a key aspect of the president's new test to treat initiative in which Americans can get tested at a local pharmacy and receive immediate free antiviral pills in the case in case that their test is positive. But some experts say moving to test to treat is a dangerous surrender to the virus. Zachary Berger is associate professor at the John Hopkins Division of General Internal Medicine and core faculty at the John Hopkins Berman Institute for Bioethics. He says the Biden administration's decision to move to test to treat means abandoning, abandoning even previous insufficient attempts to make antivirals available to our most vulnerable. And he says that the uh, result is the poorest among us, the most vulnerable among us will suffer the most. We've had an ethics problem since 2020. We don't consider the vulnerable. We're not tailoring our advice to communities and various groups of people. We're doing one size fits all. I'm not in New York, but for reading that the New York mayor has decided to focus on athletes and entertainers reveals that the priorities are out of whack. Should children take off their masks? Is it enough to get a vaccine? Can we go onto the subways next without a mask? Can we walk into stores without a mask? Socially responsible approach is telling it to the communities, telling it to the vulnerable groups, individuals. It's not going to be one size fits all answer. And that's why you can't go off at double speed with inconsistent answers. You have to really follow not just evidence, but what people need and what communities want. And that's a really case-by-case decision. So unfortunately, I don't have a one-size-fits-all answer for should kids be taking off or putting on their masks. It depends on what the school has available. It depends on the school resources. I'm calling from Baltimore, right, where we have a crying lack of resources for schools. And I know some schools in New York are like that, too. So you can't tell those schools, hey, everything's going to be okay. Just tell the kids to take a mask off. It's unrealistic. And it's cruel to parents and kids and, and teachers and staff. What could happen? We have a new surge in Europe that's hitting us pretty soon. We have COVID among kids. And despite what certain right-wing so-called public health experts have been trying to tell us in the months and years of this pandemic, kids are harmed by COVID. We're learning that people have made a mistake, that people have underestimated the effect of COVID on kids. And that's going to bite our nation where it hurts in the next months and years. 
what kind of long-term damage are we talking about? The data is unclear on what exact percentage of kids get long COVID, so I don't want to go beyond the data, right? I think that's a conservative estimate, one to two percent. But still, with thousands and thousands of kids infected, that's a significant number of kids. It's not just this what happens to you with the disease. It's the entire social effect of the pandemic. I don't mean the protective measures. I mean... There are a lot of kids without enough food, with housing instability, with kids that don't have enough work, and with kids that have been forced to go to work when they're sick or when they're at risk of COVID. And all those things are going to come back to bite us. They're talking about, well, you can take now these pills for it. That's a great success of the American biomedical system, but it's a great failure of the same system that they're not available for the people it should be available for. Again, that's the story of the pandemic, right? We've got this great stuff out there. We're not going to make it available to other countries, and we're not going to make it available to people with the have-nots. Act like everything's okay. Many people will be able to tough it out, right? I have money. I have resources. Personally, me and my family will be just fine, right? There are lots of people for whom that's not the case, and I don't know. I don't know if Mayor Adams has really had those people on top of mind. Certainly not the case in Baltimore. They could ignore COVID and say it's not really there and make believe it doesn't exist anymore, but sure as heck, it's going to... It'll one way or another, they'll send people home. Getting back to normal has been the problematic phrase of the past two years because normal was not good. And that is Zachary Berger. He's associate professor at the John Hopkins Division of General Internal Medicine and core faculty of the John Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. And March 25th marks the 111th anniversary of the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory fire, a tragic incident that killed 146 workers, mostly women, and led to a public outcry against unsafe working conditions in United States factories. The fire occurred in what is now NYU's Brown Building, which houses classroom and science labs. The Remember the Triangle Fire Coalition, which holds annual remembrance events and conducts community outreach, is planning a virtual commemoration to honor the lives lost in the 1911 tragedy. WBAI's labor reporter is Bob Henley. He says in recent years, COVID presents similar challenges to worker safety. November 1909 through 1910 to February, there was a huge, what they call uprising of 20,000, some scholars say it was much 35,000, primarily young immigrant female garment workers who were basically very militant and insisting on improving the working conditions. They were largely successful in and around this area and they did make major gains. There were outliers. The Triangle shirtwaist owners were holdouts. They were one of the larger manufacturers. They were very resistant to the efforts by the union. Scholars are divided on the reason why the doors were locked, but what we do know is that access coming and going from the place was limited. The elevator was very small. And so as a consequence of the greed and the hostility that the owners had to the workers was just so huge. And the images that came out of it with these young women filled with promise, many of them had to jump to their deaths, really transfixed the world for a period. And actually the manslaughter trial that came afterwards, the uh, owners were acquitted but through the inquest that followed, the political economy, the regulatory structure of the city of Newark was put on trial, and it set into motion significant reforms that still resonate with us today. How did they discover the fire began? What, was, what did people try and do, and what happened? Panic and desperation, and people tried to get out, and the only way for them was to jump in many cases. 
They had limited exits and entrances, and that elevator apparently could fit a couple of people. It was a recipe for disaster, and it was in the upper floors. Fire apparatus couldn't reach up to those floors. People walking on the streets started to see people, bodies, living people, smash onto the sidewalk around them. At that point... Frances Perkins, who is a major figure, she was would go on to become Secretary of Labor and the and Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidency. She was nearby at a tea house. There were media people that were happened to be around there. It was one of these things that really captured international attention. Reminds yeah, exactly. me of 9-11 is, is. in the sense of you know, saw people jumping out of a burning building and all that. These were women, young women, teenagers. Do they understand the conditions people worked in and that how unsafe it was? And in Newark, just four months before the Triangle Fire, there was an, a very similar circumstance. And in that case, 26 prim, uh, young immigrant uh, seamstresses died. In that case, they were uh, some of them were even impaled on, um, there was an iron fence outside the five or six story factory. And so at the time, imagine it happened in Newark. That made international news. It was a mass casualty fire, the worst news. And then just a few months later, it happened. So it was the compounding effect of both of these, one after the other, that I think got national attention. It's very important that we look at these um, events through the eyes of people that were living in a society that was like uh, the Gilded Age, where very much like this period of time now, uh, money just dominated. It was like you had uh, these robber barons, you had these figures who um, just controlled these vast trusts. And so working people um, had very little leverage. And this is why the union movement was such a direct response for people. I mean, they imagine today if we had 20,000 um, deliveristes, uh, deliveristes, uh, let me take the day. Imagine if we had like 20,000 undocumented essential workers in lower Manhattan. I mean, imagine what kind of courage it must have uh, taken for those women to do that. And and their legacy is that they did see a, a significant improvement in wage and hour conditions, in uh, workplace uh, fire protections. But I have to add, and we can't end this conversation without talking about, we're reflecting on the Triangle Fire in the age of COVID. As we speak right now, Paul, we have no idea how many thousands of essential workers gave their lives and how many of their family members were sickened because this government failed to have a coherent response to a pandemic everyone knew was a distinct possibility. So that's the challenge now, is to take the spirit of militancy of the Triangle Fire and make it real in the 21st century for essential workers that live every day with the threat of another pandemic. Bob Henley is WBAI's labor reporter. And nearly a year after COVID vaccines became freely available in the United States, one-fourth of American adults remain unvaccinated, and a picture of the economic cost of vaccine hesitancy is emerging. It points to financial risk for individuals, companies, and publicly funded programs. For individuals foregoing vaccination, the risks can include layoffs and ineligibility to collect unemployment, higher insurance premiums, growing out-of-pocket 
medical costs, or loss of academic scholarships. Some employers are looking to pass along a risk premium to unvaccinated workers, not unlike how smokers can be required to pay higher health premiums. One airline said it'll charge unvaccinated workers $200 extra a month in insurance. University students also can face financial consequences for opting out. At least 500 U.S. colleges have vaccine mandates, some barring enrollment or in-person schooling for those who don't comply or requiring them to undergo frequent COVID testing. And in national news, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin today said he would vote to confirm U.S. Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson with the support from the influential moderate signaling moderate that signals that he will she will have the votes to overcome widespread Republican opposition. Manchin's announcement is further evidence Democrats are united on supporting President Biden's nominee to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court with a simple majority needed for confirmation and the Senate divided 50-50 between the parties. Jackson would get the job even if no Republicans voted for her. Jackson faced two days of hostile questioning from Republicans during her confirmation hearing earlier this week with several accused her of being lenient in her previous role as a federal trial court judge in sentencing child pornography offenders. Sentencing experts say her approach was similar to most federal judges. And in more military news, President Vladimir Putin has accused the West of trying to cancel Russian culture, including the works of great composers such as Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich, and Rachmaninoff. At a televised meeting with leading cultural figures today, Putin compared the cancellation of a number of Russian cultural events in recent weeks with the actions of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Putin says, I'm talking about the progressive discrimination against everything connected with Russia, about this trend that is unfolding in a number of Western states with the full connivance and sometimes with the encouragement of Western elites. Putin singled out British author J.K. Rowling, who was criticized following controversial tweets about transgender people. Putin said, not so long ago, children's author J.K. Rowling was canceled because she, a writer of books that have sold millions of copies around the world, didn't please fans of so-called gender freedoms. Spain's Teatro Real, one of Europe's major opera houses, canceled performances earlier this year by Russia's Bolshoi Ballet. Auction house Christie's, Sotheby's and Bonhams have canceled sales of Russian art in London. And North Korea said it launched a big new ICBM today, and the United States responded saying China and Russia should tell North Korea to avoid more provocations after resumed intercontinental ballistic missile testing this week. North Korea's last ICBM launched in 2017. It prompted U.N. Secretary Council sanctions, Security Council sanctions, but the United States says it and its allies are at odds with Russia and China over the Ukraine war, making such a response more difficult. The missile is said to be capable of reaching the continental United States. And finally, in climate news, an East Antarctica ice shelf disintegrated this month following a period of extreme heat in the region. Satellite images show the 1,200 square kilometer Conger ice shelf collapsed completely on or around March 15th. NASA Earth and planetary scientist Catherine Colello Walker asked on Twitter, is it possible it hit its tipping point following the Antarctic Atmospheric River and Heat Wave 2? 
ice shelves, permanent floating sheets of ice attached to land take thousands of years to form and act like levees, holding back snow and ice that would otherwise flow into the ocean, causing seas to rise. The March heat wave, with temperatures reaching 70 degrees Fahrenheit above normal in parts of East Antarctica, was tied to the atmospheric river phenomenon, creating a fire hose of moisture. Temperatures in the region normally sit around minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's some of the news for Friday, March 25th, 2022. The news is produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from from W from New York City. I'm Paul Durieza. Thanks for listening.